0: Good morning. My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. I want to introduce myself. Uh, The church has been growing. There's a whole lot of new folks here, and I don't feel like I know everybody, and I want to if that's possible, so I want to introduce myself and say if you don't know me, uh, come up in the lobby after the service and introduce yourself. I'd like to get to know you. This is not my regular gig. Our teaching pastor, Dan Green, is on vacation this week, so I'm going to pinch it for him. If you've been here with us for a while, Dan has been leading us through the book of James. It's an incredibly practical book about wisdom and about putting feet to our faith, actually living, walking the talk. If we say we're a Christ follower, we should act a certain way. And so at the end of chapter 1, he kind of took a pit stop, and we've been walking real intentionally through the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 22 to 23, the Apostle Paul lists The fruit of the Spirit for us, he says, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if we say we're a Christ follower, we should have those things in our life. And that's the question he's been asking as he's walking through that series. Do you look different in the world? Would people look at you and say, oh, that person follows Christ because I see those things in their life? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about this. He kind of gives us the litmus test for this. And it's in the context of talking about false prophets and people who won't surrender their will to God. And he says, hey, this isn't rocket science. (laughs) Look at the analogy of a tree. If you look at a tree, you know if a tree is healthy because a healthy tree has good fruit. And one that's not healthy doesn't have good fruit. And so he wants us to look at that and know how to observe that. So we've been talking about fruit and specifically the evidence of fruit in our lives. And so I don't want to stray too far from that today as we take a break. But I kind of want to talk about what I think is maybe the most scriptural, maybe the most practical way to show fruit in our lives, and that's through serving. And I don't want to just do that by saying, hey, you should serve. You guys have been here for a while. You've heard me deliver that sermon before. I, I can 100% make a case for it, but I could make it a real short sermon. It would be, hey, you know, God is all about serving. And he sent his son to model it for you, and you'll be blessed if you do it. Amen. Go. <laughs> serve. That would be the entirety of that sermon. So what I want to do is I want to kind of challenge the fact that I think we probably know that already. I think if I was given a test today and one of the test questions was, hey, should we be serving if we're Christ follower? A whole bunch of us would be like, ooh, 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 call on me, call me. I know. And I'd call on you and you'd say, the answer is Jesus. No, the answer is yes. So we know it. I think we understand we're supposed to serve. But the hard truth is not all of us are serving. So we have to ask, if we know that, why won't we engage? Why won't we do it? I'm going to pick on my kids a little bit, and I I told a couple of them I was going to do this. One of the things that my kids do that frustrate me just to no end is that thing where if we tell them something, if we're trying to pour into them and equip them because we want them to to grow up and and be able to live on their own someday, I can't even imagine that. You know, we're telling them these things, and, and, and they don't do it, and we say, hey, you know, when you come up from upstairs... If you're the last one up, you've got to turn off the lights. And you know what they say? I know. I know. And so I wait. Prowl. I sneak over. I wait for the last one to come up, and I look down. Did they turn off the lights? You know they didn't. And so it just kills me. I don't know if the, what they're trying to do, if they want to see a vein in my head explode or what it is. You know, but, but I just can't make sense of it. If they say they know, how come they don't do it? And then I think about myself. I think about one of the vision points we have here at the chapel is that we want to be sacrificial in service. And so I think we'd say, yeah, we know that. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ, in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And so you ask, okay, what's Paul imitating? Well, he's imitating Jesus. But one of the things specifically Jesus covers in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man... Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know. (laughs) Sounds pretty sacrificial to me. Sounds pretty clear to me. I think I understand that. It's a great Mark Twain quote that I love. He says, it's not the things that I don't understand in the Bible that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. Just reading that and knowing that it's easy to read doesn't make it easy to do. And that's maybe where the challenge is for us. It's difficult to live it in our lives. So what I do today is make a biblical case for serving. I don't want you to serve just because I say so. Real honestly, if I stand up here and say anything and I don't make a case for it out of God's word, you can treat it like opinion. You can throw it out. But if we're here together and we dig into God's word and we agree, yeah, that's what that's saying, then we can't just breeze by it because it's difficult not if we truly want to look different in this world. And i got to be honest, one of the reasons that, that God really is just pressing on me is that I had an opportunity to do this pretty recently, and I blew it. <laughs> I failed really miserably. And so I thought, wow, if God's going to beat on me like that, I might as well beat on you guys too. It wouldn't just be me. But <laughs> so you get to share in my pain today. And what, what I want to do, I want to show just a real short little movie clip to kind of get us in the idea of digging in this. I think this will help us figure out, there's one thing we're supposed to be looking for, and this clip might help us get there. So let's show that clip. Cowboy leads a different kind of life when there were cowboys. They're a dying breed. Still means something to me, though. A couple of days, we'll move this herd across the river. Driving through the valley. Oh. <laughs> There's nothing like bringing in a herd. See, now that's great. Your life makes sense to you. <laughs> My wife basically told me she doesn't want me around. She read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? Thirty-eight. Thirty-nine. Yeah. You all come up here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then, and then you think two weeks up here'll untie for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. (laughs) Just one thing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. Now here's where I want to take you off the hook a little bit. I think the secret to life is one thing but I think God makes it so clear that I'm not going to have to make you figure it out. I think this passage that we're going to look at today, if you'll turn with me in your Bible, it's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to look specifically at verses 28 to 31. I think this passage is one of the most familiar in all Scripture. You guys are going to be familiar with this. And sometimes that's a bad thing. I've heard it called the wallpaper effect before. You know what that is? You go into somebody's house and they decorate it in the 70s and they have like the orange shag carpet, and they've got big, bold wallpaper prints, like an orange and hot pink and with flowers and stripes and everything, but they don't even see it. They've become so used to it that it doesn't even register for them. Everybody else sees it. <laughs> we know what it looks like, but they don't. Practically, it's become invisible for them. Please don't let that happen here. Don't that let, ha- let that happen with this verse, because there's a big thing we're supposed to get here. And I don't want the familiarity of the passage to take it away. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered. He said, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. I just graduated from seminary. And the first class I took in seminary, the professor or the uh, president of the seminary, Mark Bailey, taught. And he said something on the first day. He said, hey, here's the thing. If you're going to be in professional ministry and you want to bring glory to God and you want to make an impact in the world, this is what you want to do. You want to identify the main thing and then make it the main thing. And once you make it the main thing, you need to keep it the main thing. Because there'll be side things that come in and want to be the main thing, and they can't be the main thing. And right away I questioned, is seminary the right place for, <laughs> for me? <laughs> I, I, just, I don't think I grasped everything we was talking about, but now I see the wisdom in that statement. In the local church, there are all sorts of things. And it's like they want to pop up and, and have aspiration to become the main thing. Serving can be that way, but serving's not the main thing. I want us to see that today. Serving can kind of get in the way. It's, it's the most practical way for us to show the fruit of the Spirit, but it's not the main thing. I think to figure that out, we have to dig a little deeper and go, okay, what's the motivation behind serving? I don't want you to serve just because I say to do it. We need to serve out of something deeper. And I think this passage explains it. And so in the passage, a lawyer comes up to Jesus I think about that. That sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? Jesus and a lawyer are playing golf. and No, it's, it's not that. Uh, here he's called a scribe, but in Matthew 22 and in Luke 10, he's identified as a lawyer, and he comes up to Jesus, and he says, what's the main thing? And see, we don't have to figure it out for ourselves. It's right here. I love this quote from John Ortberg, a pastor and author I like. He says, here you have the greatest person, who ever was or ever will be, surveying the greatest book that ever was and ever will be, telling us with the greatest authority that anyone could ever have what's the greatest sentence, what's the greatest point in all that greatness. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's extraordinary to me. If that's not the one main thing, I'll never find it. And that being said, you understand, we won't have time to plumb the depths of that statement today. That could be our teaching topic for the rest of the year, for the rest of my life. And we're not going to dig all the way down to the bottom of that. So I think what I want to do is just focus on how big it is. Just focus on the comprehensiveness of it. And even just that first part of loving God with everything we've got. So the lawyer comes and he asks that question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus looks to the Shema in Scripture. It's this passage in Deuteronomy. That's what we call it because the first word is hear. And that's what it means. Hear, O Israel. And what it is, really, it's the Orthodox Jew's summary of all their beliefs. Every observant Jew recites this every morning, every evening. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus references verse 5 specifically. That's where the, the greatest commandment is. But let's look at the context in verses 6 to 9, because I think it will blow you away. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says, These words which I'm commanding you today, the main thing, the one thing, he says, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, bind them on your hand. It shall be as the frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do we get what Jesus is saying here? When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way means your private life and your public life. Binding it on your hands, putting it on your forehead means what you're thinking on the inside and what you're doing on the outside. When you lie down, when you rise up, that's always. Do we get the comprehensiveness of this? Write it on the doorpost means you teach this and you live this in your family. Write it on the gates means you teach this and you live this in society where you live and breathe. See, if we love God with our whole heart, we should love him with our whole lives. Every part of it. We won't just love him when he comes here on Sunday morning. We'll love him. Every other day of the week, too. We won't just love God in our private life, but we won't ever do it publicly. We won't just love God when we're around this person, but not around that person. In every aspect of our lives, we need to ask that question. How am I loving God in this situation? How do I love you with my finances, God? How do I love you with my obedience, Daddy? How, How do I love you when I resist temptation and flee from evil? How are you with me? And what we get is the word Shema means hear, but the language screams do. These are action things. You have to do this. If you want to look different in the world, you have to do different things. If we truly want to love God with all our hearts, then this is the thing we're going to do. We have to engage with our family, with our coworkers, with the people that are around us. And I think that's the thing that leads to the second part of that commandment. It says we have to love our neighbors as ourselves. I didn't make this up. Jesus, again, goes back to the book. He quotes Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Maybe it's just me, but I think sometimes we see these two main parts of the main thing as separate things. I'm going to love God over here, and I'll love people over here. And if that's been our take, then this is going to sting a little bit. but I think we've got it wrong. Look at 1 John 4, verses 20 to 21. I know the Apostle John is so black and white, but he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. He says, in this commandment we have from him, we have from God, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we can't love the people we see, the people we work with, the people who fix our cars and operate on us and sell us gas and deliver our pizza, if we can't love those people, then how are we going to keep the main thing as the main thing? John says this commandment's from God. It's not from me. We must love one another. And, again, it's convicting to me because I talk a good game of that and sometimes I do a good game of that, but I know in my heart I'm selfish. And maybe that's news to you. But, but sometimes I really think, man, I just want to be alone. <laughs> I just want to read the Bible and pray or study and just be alone. And one of the things that, where I saw this a couple years ago, I love camping. I love to camp, love being with my family. But one of the reasons I love camping is really selfish. I love to wait until everybody else goes to bed, and then I go back out and sit by the fire. And I love to go out there and just be out in creation and be quiet, and, and I read and I study. And I don't need anybody to come along and bother that. It's time for me. This is a true story. A couple years ago we went camping with some friends of ours, and I thought they were gonna stay, you know, further away from where we were camping, and they stayed right next to the campsite where we were. And it was great for the kids and they enjoyed playing and it was a good time or whatever. But you know, I'm selfish. And that night I was really excited about everybody going to bed and I was gonna go out by the fire. And so Christina and I got all the kids in the tent and they're getting to sleep and and so I get ready to go out and I start to unzip the, the tent. And I look out, and here's my buddy, and he's over at my fire. I just zipped the tent back closed and (laughs) went and laid down. Christina goes, what's wrong? I'm like, he's out there at my fire. It's how selfish I am. See, if I say that I love people and then I do something like that, I think God is saying to me, I don't care how lofty your prayers sound. I don't care how many verses you've memorized. I don't care how sound you think your doctrine is. If you don't love people, you don't love me. And I think the language even there is incredibly intentional. Scripture says we ought to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And I've got to be honest. If I love my neighbor like I love myself, I'd really be loving my neighbor. Because I love me some me. I think what God is doing is he's calling us to this notion of taking off ourselves. Removing the exterior, taking off the the hard candy shell or the big bubble or whatever it is, so that we don't hide ourselves from the world. But then that's not even enough. I think he wants us to take the bubble off and then go wrap it around somebody else and see if we can get a sense of, man, what are they feeling? What are they thinking? If I'd quit taking all my energy and pouring it into making sure I'm comfortable or successful or happy, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden somebody else was wearing my big bubble, and I put all my effort into making sure they were comfortable. What would that look like for me? I think I'd start figuring out how to keep the main thing the main thing. So that's where I'm going to make a case for serving. I believe with all my heart, the best answer is in God's Word. When we love God with all our heart, and we love our neighbors ourselves, we're going to serve people. I think Scripture Makes this case. I talked about the Shema, and that's where the commandment comes from. There's a parallel passage, actually, in Deuteronomy 10. And I think it links the love of God to the service of people. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12 starts here. It says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. If you love God, you'll serve him. And this passage even goes on to explain who we're supposed to serve. In verse 18, it says he executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien or the outsider by giving him food and clothing. He says, so you show your love for the alien. For you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and swear by his name. Is this as convicting for you as it is for me? If I'm going to be a Christ follower, much more, if I'm going to walk around telling people I love God with all my heart and that I don't serve, how much do I really love God? i would mentioned before this was really hard on me because not last weekend, yesterday, but weekend before, I had an opportunity to do this and do it well for somebody, and I almost blew it. I mean, I, I, I did blow it, <laughs> and then God convicted me at the, at the tail end of it. There's a lady who lives on our block, and she's a, a widow lady, and, and she's one of those that really probably can't take care of herself in some things. And uh, I'd had a busy week, and I'd served a bunch the day before, and that was Saturday morning, and I had had a meeting and a counseling appointment, so I didn't get home to lunch, and I was ready to just be home. And she comes and knocks on the door. I got a problem with my plumbing. I'm not a plumber. I never played one on TV. I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express, but I grabbed my stuff, and I went over to her house, and I said, I'll try and help. And she got a new washer in the Shut-off valve. or washer water supply was bad. And I tried to fix it and I couldn't. I was like, "You're gonna have to buy a new one of those. They're not very expensive." She goes and buys it. Comes back. I put it on. You know, hour, hour and a half. It's great. But after I got that fixed, now there's a problem with her main water supply. It's leaking. You know, the house is 30 years old. All the plumbing's original. I can't just re- replace this. And so I got to try and figure out a way to find a compression fitting and an O-ring that'll fit on this. And and so I go. I ended up at three different hardware stores and, and spent a few bucks of my own money. That wasn't a big deal. But my attitude was horrible. At the first two stores I went to, I said this out loud. I'm glad you weren't there. To, to people who were waiting on me, I said, this isn't even my problem. <laughs> this is my neighbor. I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. How did I get in this? I said that out loud. In The third store I was in, the Holy Spirit quit being a gentleman, and he kind of smacked me upside the back of my head. And I realized I've lost it. I'd lost the main thing. The main thing wasn't if, if I was going to find the right nut, no ring. The main thing wasn't even the water, very honestly. The main thing was if this had been my deal, my water was going to be shut off for the weekend and I couldn't take a shower and my kids couldn't use the bathroom, we couldn't wash clothes, man, I'd be all about fixing that. And here I am saying this isn't even my problem. <laughs> Why wasn't I willing to give up a few hours and a few bucks to help my neighbor if I really love God? What, what excuse could I have given to the God of the universe that would have got me out of this? If he'd said, hey, do you love me with everything you've got? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? If we'd get this, and I say we, if me, if I'd get this, if we'd get this as a local church, don't you think we'd look different? How, how different would it look here in the chapel? How different would it look in our neighborhoods? How different would it look in the world? But I don't think we grasp this very well, and I don't just mean us. I mean the church. Local churches are struggling with this. There's a couple of researchers that have written some thought-provoking books over the last couple of years, and I question some of the assumptions they make, but, but the data they gather is a punch in the gut for Christians. George Barna and David Kinnaman. Barna writes, Research shows that our local churches have almost no influence on this culture. Kinnaman goes on to add outsiders, those who are not in the local church. Outsiders' perceptions of Christianity reflect a church that is infatuated with itself. Further, he writes, in society at large, the perception of evangelical Christianity is disproportionately negative. The ratio is 16 to 1. 16 negatives to one positive. And i got to ask, if that's accurate, how did we get here? The local church, any local church that says we want to have the main thing as the main thing, and that is overwhelmingly negative to people? Is it because we don't love God with our whole heart? Or is it because we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves? If you do research on the early church, it may not sound like much fun, but, it, but it's kind of neat. You'll see the early church began just with a handful of apostles and believers. And by 350 A.D., it had spread to being 56% of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Did they have a great church growth strategy that we're just not catching on to? They actually had one, but it was, it was kind of forced on them. It was the plague. In 165 A.D., there was a massive plague that killed 25% of the population. About 100 years later, there was another plague. And you read about it, and it's gruesome, I'll just warn you, to the point where mothers and fathers would have infected children and they'd just throw the children outside to avoid being contaminated and die themselves. So this is hard, hard stuff to read. But in that, there's a, a guy who wrote a book, Rodney Stark, and it's a neat book called The Rise of Christianity. He writes, there was a real famous doctor back in the day, the most famous doctor whose name was Galen, and when the plague came, he left. <laughs> he just got out of town. He, he didn't want to jump in and engage at all. But then Stark quotes another guy, named Dionysius, and I don't know who this is. It was a real common name back in the Greco-Roman world, but he's a believer. And he said, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. It says they lost their lives in this manner. Many elders and ministers as well. Many of the Christians cheerfully took their neighbor's death on themselves by nursing them back to health, and in the process, they died in their place. Well, that's a nice story, James. That's what with all the Christians being infected and dying? Where, where, where's the happy ending to that? Well, by 350 A.D., 56% of the Roman Empire was Christian because they saw something different in these people. This is an amazing church growth strategy. I'm not saying we need to adopt it right away. But, but when we stop worrying about ourselves and we start engaging in the world, we can impact the world. People notice that. So from an application standpoint, how do I do it? How do I love God with all my heart? How do I love my neighbors myself? Where do we perform this kind of radical service? And I think, not going to apologize for this, (laughs) I think since the call to love is so comprehensive, I think the call to serve has to be as well. I think we've got to serve everywhere. And now when I say that, I know that creates some problems. You aren't supposed to serve everywhere, and neither are you. We are all supposed to serve everywhere. Individually, God's given you some gifts, and, and he's given you a passion, and you've got to pray, and you've got to let him guide you, and you've got to find the areas you engage in. But we're supposed to do this all together. And I think, I don't know this for sure, but I think one of the things that gets in the way is we kind of lose focus on what leadership and servant leadership really are. And, and we like the title of leader better than servant. You ever watch of the old alien movies? My dad used to love those. You little green men would come down. They liked it too. They'd come out of the spaceship, and the first thing they'd always say, take me to your leader. They never came down and said, hey, where are all the servants? That wasn't the question. We want to lead because there's a title. There's prestige to that. And we think, well, gosh, you know, God has given me some leadership gifts, so I can't necessarily serve. That's not what you see in Scripture. God's plan to develop leaders is a little radical. I'm sure you've probably heard the story of these two young brothers who grew up working with their dad in the family business. Her dad had branched out on his own. And he started this business, and it started to grow and prosper. And he had his young sons, John and Jim, with him all the time. And they got to, to see what hard work was like. At a young age, they knew what it was like to work all day and go home and just drop. But the business was successful, and, and they learned another thing. They kind of liked being, you know, in charge. They knew their dad was in charge of the company, but as he got older, they were kind of assuming some more responsibility, and they were the number two guys, and I think they kind of liked that. Now, both of the brothers, sadly, had anger management issues. (laughs) They had real short fuses, but they were good workers. And so this business was growing, and one day, out of the blue, a new young leader who was starting a new organization rolled into town, and he handpicked John and Jim to come be part of this elite kind of leadership group that he had. And I don't know. I guess they saw it as their chance to hit it big. And so they turned their back on their commitment and on their dad, and they followed this other guy, this new leader. But they ran into a problem right away because John and Jim had issues with their new boss. Their new boss looked at things differently than they did. He had compassion, and he wanted to serve people, and they had none, (laughs) and they wanted to use people. Probably the biggest issue was the idea of where they fit in the structure. When, when they'd been in their dad's business, they were the number two guys. They were right there. Now in this new business, there were 12 of these guys, and they all seemed to be on equal footing. And so John and Jim got their heads together, and they came up with a plan to get a leg up on the other guys. And so they waited for a time when they were alone with the boss, and they kind of sidled up to him and said, hey, you know, we got just some suggestions for this organization, and we want you to know we're willing to be your number two guys. We'd sit on your right and left hand. We can do this. And then, just in case that wasn't enough, they actually got a close relative of theirs to go and plead their case too. They really wanted this to happen. Well, their secret plan didn't stay secret very long. The other ten guys heard about it, and then they started jockeying for position. They all wanted the title. They wanted to be leaders. If you would, flip back with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 10, verses 42 to 45 You do know this story. You've heard this before. Jesus Christ is the boss of this new organization. It's called the kingdom of God. But he's not like any other boss that John and James have ever seen. And he calls for this executive committee meeting of the disciples, and he says, you guys have totally missed the point. You you don't understand the purpose of this intentional time that I've spent with you. All the lectures, all the -the on-the-job training, you don't seem to grasp that the kingdom of God is going to be built on giving not on getting. It's going to be based on serving, not on receiving. That's a paraphrase. Here's what he actually says in Mark 10. He says, calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not that way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, that's a servant leadership principle that plays for all times. That's what we're supposed to do. We don't want to be like Dr. Galen and when things get hard, we run. We get out of town. We're supposed to live differently. When the opportunities arise and we engage, when we put the fruit of the Spirit on display in our lives, that's when we can answer the question from that series Dan's teaching. How in the world are we different? And so we don't have time to explore all of them in depth, but your outline lists the three big areas where we can engage, and it's in our homes, in the local church, and in the world. And these are going to be real general, but I think we have to ask some questions. What will it look like if I do these things? And I don't know. (laughs) That's the question you ask God. Where am I passionate? What gifts have you given me? Is there something I can do that can maybe combine these things? I love the thing DT was talking about with the mission care teams. If you, if you notice, you can do all three of these with that one thing. Maybe you sign up, to take care of a missionary, and your whole family does it. That's the missionary you guys pray for at home, and your kids write cards and send letters. And if you do that, you're partnering with a local church because we already support these people. But also, you're out in the world. You know, ah, how can I be out in the world? I'm not going to go to the Philippines. What well, doesn't matter. <laughs> support Steve and Donnie St. Clair, and you're going to be in the Philippines. Because we'll be praying for them and encouraging them. We can do these things. It's not that hard. The opportunities are there. But when you're looking at these, I want to focus just on these three things for sure. How can we look different serving in our homes? And there's got to be a zillion ways. And I want you guys to talk with God about this and be challenged. But one of the things I think that you see in that Shema in Deuteronomy is about equipping our kids. As parents, we can serve as, as the chief equippers because we want it to yield big results. I mean, I want my kids to turn the lights off someday, but that's a separate issue. What I want more than anything is for them to grow in Christ. And Christina and I have the biggest responsibility in that right now. And so we want to serve them in a way that grows them. We model things. We try. We instruct. I try, and I fail miserably many times, to have a good marriage right in front of my kids. I think that's a phenomenal example for them to see. If you're married, think about intentionally serving your spouse. Is there something your spouse hates to do? Do that. Jump in and do it. Serving them in that way will draw you closer together. Having our priorities right, loving, respecting, honoring our spouses right, that's a way we can serve. And In front of our kids, it's a ministry. We could spend all day on this. I really can't stress it enough. The most important context for service, hear me on this, in your lives, is going to be in your homes. Even if you're not married, even if you don't have kids, you still need to serve your family, and you need to serve with your family. There will be no higher calling from God to other people that should supersede the precedence, the priority of you serving in your family. I was on Young Life staff before I came on staff here at the church, and one of the big reasons I left is because I got too old and fat to be cool anymore and that hurts. You know, that's my deal. No, no, one of the big reasons that I left was because Christina loved me enough to confront me, to speak the truth and love to me. We just had Trace. We had four kids under seven years old, and I was out of the house four or five nights every week, and Christina pulled me aside and said to me, hey, I'm sure you're doing a nice job of being a spiritual leader out there. That's great, but I need you to do that at home. That was in October. I was on staff here at the church in January. I wasn't looking for a job. God God helped me get past that. It wasn't that I was doing a bad job. I wasn't taking care of the most important thing. To keep the main thing the main thing, we need to be serving at home. We should be serving in the church. I think the New Testament makes this so clear because all Christ followers, the people who make up the church, have at least one spiritual gift. And every discussion of spiritual gifts in Scripture, the main takeaway is we're supposed to use them. God gave each one of them to us for a purpose, and this is really clear in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul starts with just a partial list of spiritual gifts, and then he explains why he gives them. He says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's folks who are already in the body and telling people about them so they become part of the body. That's why we serve. There's a a book that I read and I absolutely love this picture. I can't get it out of my head. The gifts are lavished on us as Christ followers so we can serve. And this guy Robert Banks wrote a book called Redeeming the Routines. He says that when believers in Christ gather together in the local church, it should look like a lot of really young kids going to a birthday party. I don't know if you've been to one of those recently, but like, you know, kids six or under, if you go to their birthday party, it's a zoo. Man, it's a free for all. It's a lot of fun. But the, the big part of it is after they come off the sugar high and you peel them off the walls, you know, one of the last things you do normally is they, they open presents. And man, when it's time to open presents, all the kids gather around, but they don't go to see what the birthday kid got. They don't go to say, oh, man, what a haul for that kid. You know why they gather around? You know why they're so excited? If you haven't been to a party in a while, you, you've forgotten this. You've lost it. They go because they want to see the kid open the gift that they brought. Banks says, and I agree, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's what the church should be doing. Only it's even better in the church because it's not one person getting all the gifts. We're all getting all the gifts. The only way to do this is not by picking one of you out, one of me, and saying, hey, you've got to do it all. The only way to do this is for all of us to do it. The contributions of the entire body are needed for each person, and each person needs to contribute so the entire body can do it. Think of a birthday party. We should be using our gifts to serve in the church, and we should be serving outside the church. And again, that's a, a big scope. I read a book about a year and a half ago, really challenged me, called There's a Hole in Our Gospel. A guy named Richard Starnes is the president of World Vision And his huge burden, his passion is for the world, for going out into the world and and reaching the marginalized and lost people. And many times, he wrote in this book, he's pleaded for folks who are active in their local churches who are serving to answer God's call to go into the world, to love God and then to love others. And many times he'll get folks who say, man, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And often they give excuses that indicate, well, I'm so busy serving in my home or serving in my church that I just can't go out into the world. And make God known. And I'm going to cut him some slack, or the people who say that. It could be accurate. You still have to look and say, okay, I can't do everything. Am I doing the things God's called me to? And if you are, then don't neglect your family to go serve in the world. That, that's something you and God are going to figure out. But he really challenged me on this. He shared this thought. He said, far too often, Christians want to serve in the magic kingdom of the church, where we often are comfortable and pretty familiar. He says the activities are designed to be exhilarating, but they've been tested. They're safe. There are people there that we know and love, and they're along on the ride. And when we get done at the end of the day, even if it was a tough day, even if it was long and grueling, we get to sleep in a comfortable bed. He says it's like a trip to the magic kingdom. But he shared that a big part of the rest of the world, those who are outside of the confines of the local church, they live in the tragic kingdom. There's no guarantee comfort and safety and security for them. They he said, if we really want to help people in the tragic kingdom, some of us are going to have to get up and leave the magic kingdom to do it. Have to venture outside. Have you been challenged today? Are you like me and sometimes you think, man, I'm so much more concerned about my own comfort than the main thing. I got on my kids earlier for saying, I know, I know, and then they don't turn the lights off. When I think about that, I I can't imagine what God thinks about me when I say, yeah, I know, God. I I get it. I'm supposed to love you with my whole heart. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. But then I really don't care if my neighbor has water for the weekend because I'd rather watch some golf on TV. Those things are challenging to me. The opportunities are out there. We need to be willing to engage. What would it mean if you answered the call and he had to say to do it I got to die to myself. Not even physically, but maybe you do. I look at that example of the early church and and the folks who got the plague and died, and right away my, my thought goes, I mean, what were they? Were they like super Christians? Were they better, stronger, faster than us? And I go back and I read the Bible of the accounts, the things that are going on at that time, and no, they struggled with the same things we struggle with. They just didn't have the Internet, so it didn't spread as fast. But it was the same stuff they were struggling with. But they were obedient. They answered the call. A lot of us have simply simply chosen not to engage. We say, well, the situation around us is pretty dire, but, man, I'm just going to get out. (laughs) I'm going to run to the hills. We're okay with studying the Bible. We want to do that. We want to come into the magic kingdom and serve a little bit. I like listening to the sermons. But if you ask me to go and do something hard, I'm out of here. Turn with me in your Bible one more time the book of Esther. This is what we'll close with today. Let's look at the book of Esther. Let's start in chapter 4 and verse 11. Esther's in the Old Testament right between Nehemiah and Job. It's before the Psalms. Don't have time to set all the context, but here in chapter 4, the, the big part of the story is already unfolded. So let me summarize real quickly. Queen Esther lives in the magic kingdom. She hadn't told anybody she's a Jew, but now this guy Haman has devised a plan to wipe out all the Jews. And Esther's relative Mordecai gets word to her that the people out in the tragic kingdom need her help. And so he asks her to go to the king and plead for the Jews. And here's what she says in verse 11. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who's not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out for him the golden scepter so that he may live. And she says, and I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. We paraphrase again. She says, yeah, indeed, that is a problem. That's a real issue. And I feel sorry for those people out in the tragic kingdom, but I live in the magic kingdom. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be okay. This is not an Esther-only problem. This is replayed over and over again in Scripture, I think, in our lives. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, we won't have time to go through it, but look at that. It outlines the cost of discipleship. It shows that God's call should take precedent over our comforts. And it's hard teaching. I'll tell you, when you go and look at it this week, it's hard. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to ignore it. And maybe we respond. We say, well, I do. I do love God with all my heart just like Esther would have said, or just like these guys in Luke 9. But I'm just not ready to serve yet. I need to get ready to serve. I was driving in the car with Gavin this week, and I shared this story, and we, we laughed for a long time. Uh, Christina and I, our anniversary is Friday. We've been married 16 years. And we waited about three years before uh, we had kids. And some of that was just me not being ready. I, I really was scared. Um, I didn't have a great childhood growing up. Uh, God used all those things. Uh, I had a little bit of anger issues myself, and I thought, man, I'm just not ready to have kids. But one of the real practical things that I wasn't ready for was I'd never changed a diaper. I'd never changed a diaper until Gavin was born. And so somebody had to show me how to do it, and I got pretty good at it. I think I counted how many I've changed. It was a million and seven uh, in my life. Uh, but, but, so I'm pretty good at it. But here in the first few months, I wasn't real good at it, and I was getting better. And I remember one time going in to change Gavin's diaper. And, uh, and Christina trusted me at this point in time, so I must have been doing okay. And, and he was so tiny. You know, he was by himself. And I, and I got the diaper off. I did pretty good. But I didn't put the other one under there, you know, quick enough. And, and he peed on me before. You know, I, I was okay with this. But this time he didn't pee. This time he did something else. And, uh, and he was so tiny. I mean, it, it, and it just it blew my mind because it went across the room. Like it it went entirely across the room, and I kind of freaked a little bit. I went ah, you know. And so Christina comes running in. Oh my gosh, what happened? And like the first thing she notices when she come in is that it's across the room. We had to get rid of the computer keyboard because it was in the keyboard. And 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 so and so the thing is, here's the deal. I wasn't ready. (laughs) I wasn't ready to have kids. I didn't know it at the time, but we had three more. we're not very smart. We, uh, but, but yeah. I, I look now, I look now, and, and it's easy. It's always easy to look backwards. I look now and I go, man, what a blessing. I can't imagine my life without my kids, without the things God has taught me through that. But, but what was I going to do? Because I'll tell you the truth. If I'd waited till I was ready to have kids, we'd still have zero kids. We can't wait till we're ready to do these things. We have to say, God, do I love you? with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength? If I do, then I've got to love my neighbor as myself. And I can't be aware of a situation. I can't know of something that's going on and go, eh, I'm just not ready for that. Esther says that. I'm just not ready to serve yet. So Mordecai encourages her. <laughs> and it's hard encouraging. It's challenging. It's speak the truth in love kind of encouraging, like Christina did for me about my job. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He says, do not imagine that in the king's palace you can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. See, God had a plan for Esther's life. She was uprooted from her home, and she won this big beauty contest that put her in the palace. And because of that, she was in the position to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Have we stopped to consider why God has you, where he has you, and the time and place he has you? Why are you part of this local body at Cape Bible Chapel? Small groups are going to start back in about a month and a half. Is God calling you to lead one? We're going to start multiple services real soon. There's tons of needs. We need greeters and folks to work in the sound booth and and tons of teachers for nursery and, and for children's and for students' programs. We need these things. Does God have you here for such a time as this? What about that missions care team? One of the things DT had said is we used to have a missions team, and it was small, and we didn't involve everybody in the body. We're supposed to involve everybody in the body. What if that's the thing you can go serve at? What if it's one of the new things like this Nehemiah project that we're doing? We've got that informational meeting next week. We need to go to that and go, is there a way I can serve in that? Esther 4.16 has her answer, her reply to the challenge. She says, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I'll go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Gather together, fast, pray, seek God, and then, I don't care if you're ready or not, then I'm going to go. I'm going to engage. And if I perish, I perish. God used that one girl to change history, the history of the world. What if this local church engaged that way? What if 500, 600 of us got together and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to love God with everything we've got. We're going to love our neighbors, ourselves, even if it's dangerous. Even if I have to say, hey, if I perish, I perish. What would this church look like? What our neighborhoods look like? What would this town look like? What would the world look like? Let's keep the main thing the main thing and engage. We're going to have this incredible opportunity today to participate in the Lord's Supper great time to examine our own hearts and confess and be right with God. If you're here with us as a visitor today, this is for you. If you follow Christ, you get this opportunity to remember his great love, his great sacrifice for you. So I'm going to pray and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father God, let me be transparent. Let me confess. And you know our hearts. God, let me me confess the areas where I, I forget. God, the areas where I don't at all look different from the world. I don't show that I love you with everything I've got. I don't love my neighbor as myself. God, let me confess those areas. And, God, as you have sent your son, not to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. God, let that convict me, to engage, to jump in, to do the things you want me to do, not because I said it today or anybody says it. God, because you say it, because it's the way that we show we love you. It's the way that we look different from this world. God, deal with our hearts. We love you. We give you this time today. We praise you. We thank you so much. We ask all those things in Jesus' name, amen.